Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from the innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a senior editor at Forbes covering all things crypto. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please help get the word out about the show. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, or in your secret Slack and Telegram channels. And if you have a chance, give the show a rating or review on iTunes. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. This week's episode is brought to you by OnRamp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see. And in the current wild west of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. The topic of today's episode is the upcoming Bitcoin Segwit2x hard fork. If this is a topic you are not familiar with, I suggest you go read an article I wrote that came out last week called, Will This Battle for the Soul of Bitcoin Destroy It? It's a long read. It's actually the longest article I've ever written, I think. But it describes the philosophical differences between the two sides of this upcoming hard fork, the political differences, and how the hard fork itself could play out. You can also refer back to a couple episodes I've now done on this topic. Episode 19, Why Bitcoin May Split in Two and How to Prevent It, with Jeff Garcik and Charlie Lee in April. And episode 26, Why November Will Be the Real Test for Bitcoin, with Eric Lombroso and Brian Hoffman, and that came out in July. The very brief background here is that blocks in the Bitcoin blockchain have been getting full, which has been driving up fees as people compete to get transactions included in the next block or one soon after. It's come down to two proposals to increase the number of transactions that can be processed at any given time. One is called SegWit, which is a different way of organizing the information in the blocks. And the other is a compromise solution that includes SegWit, but also just doubles the size of the block. And that's called SegWit2x. The first proposal, just SegWit, is mostly backed by the developers and a vocal contingent of users. And SegWit2x is mostly backed by some of the largest startups in the space, such as Coinbase, Blockchain, Zappo, Circle, and Block, as well as the vast majority of the miners. As of today, which is Wednesday, the Wednesday before this episode comes out, about 80 to 85% of miners are signaling their intention to put their hash power to SegWit2x as of the time of this recording. However, a few markets have opened for so-called chain split tokens, which function sort of like futures markets, and those are the exact opposite. They show 85% support for the one megabyte chain and only 15% support for the SegWit2x chain. So around November 15th or 16th, this hard fork to a chain featuring a two megabyte block will occur, creating, possibly temporarily, possibly permanently, two blockchains, both with SegWit, but one with a one megabyte block and the other with a two megabyte block. Here to discuss how and why it's reached this point and what could happen next are Mike Belshi, CEO of BitGo, and one of the developers of the SegWit2x hard fork, and Matt Corallo, a longtime Bitcoin protocol developer. Welcome, Mike and Matt. Hi, Laura. Hey, thanks for having me. Mike, can you briefly tell us your role in SegWit2x? Sure. Well, Bitco did not sign the New York agreement, which is kind of what kicked off the process for SegWit2x. I think my role in this debate goes back a couple of years now, uh, You know, as does Matt's. We've all been working hard to figure out how do we move forward with improving scalability for Bitcoin. Uh, there's a lot of different approaches uh, that have been talked about over the last few years, and there's been a lot of heated debate. Uh, overall, you know, we get excited about this as though it's all contentious and we want different things, but we're actually probably more common than we're not common. So anyway, in uh, in May of this year, what did lead to this is, you know, SegWit had been out there. You know, we had been unable to achieve consensus to activate SegWit, largely blocked by the mining contingent. Um, the community, as you know, is made up of many different folks. 
but a lot of us wanted to see SegWit go through, and we wanted to figure out how to how to increase capacity more generally as well. So we actually uh, a, a group of folks led by Barry Silver got together, said, "Hey, how can we get past this impasse? How can we get SegWit activated? How can we make everybody come together uh, with consensus to get this done?" And we came up with with basically the same plan that had been uh, come up with a, you know, a year ago before at the Hong Kong Agreement, which was to, to do SegWit and a two megabyte uh, increase. So that's what we came up with, and uh, I've I've been interested in that. I think that you know Bitcoin has a long prosperous future ahead of it, and it's going to take a lot of changes, good ones. It's going to take good engineering. It's going to take hard effort. We're going to have to get consensus again and again to do different types of things. That's what makes Bitcoin great. Uh, so there'll be more things that we have to do to to make it available to the world. Yeah. So my 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 involvement is to promote the, the both both types of capacity increases and uh, looking forward to that that going through. And so why did uh, Bitco not sign? But but you're working on the this Segwit two X code. Yeah. Well, sometimes I get you know called a, just a, a, an ignorance. Uh, CEO, but actually my background is in technology. I uh, I've been involved with standards processes for protocols. You'll find my name at the top of the specification for HTTP 2.0. So you know uh, the internet protocols mostly have been developed through a process uh, which which is um, charted with the IETF, which is the Internet Engineering Task Force, and that's where my background comes from. I don't like the idea of companies signing agreements and saying, hey, we're going to do it. I think the great ideas start from the ground up. You start with development. You get a good group of people together. Every idea, it starts with one or two people. They work together. They figure out how to make it a little better. You start to socialize it. You grow it. You grow it. You grow it. And the IETF is very much about individuals coming together and trying to, to break chains of whatever corporate sponsor they may come from. So, for instance, when an individual comes to protocol development in the IETF, they know that they vote as an individual. And even if a company may send, you know, five, 10, 100 developers to a conference, each of those developers speaks for themselves and not for their company. So, I mean, the, the New York agreement, I'm not trying to, to discredit it. It's fine. Um, it's just not for me. Uh, I think a better first, get all the support. And then, you know, people want to say, hey, yes, I support this. I don't support this. I mean, ultimately, you need sign-offs, right? So, so that's all fine. But um, we, we didn't like that approach. It had been done a few times before in the Bitcoin space to try to just get a, a, a paper write off. Um, and, you know, they haven't worked. And folks from all sides have tried that. Right. I mean, folks on the, the core development team assign these things. Corporate folks assign these things. The Bitcoin uh, Satoshi Roundtable put one together. I mean, this, they just haven't worked very well. So we were looking for I was looking for something different. Okay, and that would explain why, I don't know if um, any listeners saw this, but on Twitter, people, I, I think this was on Reddit, people were laughing because there was a Twitter exchange between you and some of the some of your own employees where you guys were arguing about one, ex, or one megabyte versus two megabytes, and they thought it was funny that, um, that you were publicly airing your differences. Um, and I also just actually wanted to reference for listeners earlier, Mike talked about the difficulty in getting SegWit 2x adopted, and that was, or sorry, SegWit adopted, and that was because after the developers created that code, they said, "Oh, we'll only adopt it as long as 95% of miners signal that they would like it," and um, only about 30% did. Uh, so obviously, it didn't get adopted. And then he also mentioned Barry Silbert, who, if you don't know is uh, the head of the the digital currency group, which is one of the biggest investors in the space. And they have invested in, I think, almost like 100 different Bitcoin and crypto companies around the world. Um, okay, so let's turn to Matt. Matt, what is your role with the Bitcoin protocol? Um, so I've been a developer on various Bitcoin projects since 2011, early 2011, uh, which puts me at I believe roughly the sixth publicly recorded person to contribute to the Bitcoin project, as it was called at the time, now Bitcoin Core. I've also contributed to numerous scaling proposals and, and implementations of a number of, of projects across the Bitcoin space. Yeah, so I, I just have a, a long background developing various technologies in and around the Bitcoin space. I want to push back on a few things and a few characterizations here, first of all. I think viewing SegWit2x in the context of just a block size change or just a block size debate is frankly somewhat myopic, right? Uh, 
I thought your article, Laura, was really great. It gave a lot of background, a lot of detail, but it did miss kind of the fundamental reason why so many people are staunchly opposed to Segwit2x. Right. And that's because it, like every other hard fork proposal and hard fork attempt uh, over the last four years, as Mike mentioned, there's been numerous ones, numerous sign on letters, numerous proposals, numerous whatever, have baked in a kind of proposal for how to change the governance in Bitcoin and how how Bitcoin should be changed in the future. And we've seen Segwit2x I think has been really interesting because it is cut right at the heart of how people define Bitcoin. And there are numerous different answers to this question, and I think all of them are valid, but we really need to be focusing on what are the kind of core beliefs that lead people to have such strong feelings about this kind of change. And there's a lot of people coming down on different sides, and I find that really interesting, right? There's a lot of companies who've come out and said that they will call Bitcoin the thing that has the most hash power over time. Uh, there's some companies that have come down and said they refer to Bitcoin as the thing which is defined by its rules as written in software and that changes to it require some level of fairly broad consensus and that if there isn't such a thing, then the default is that there should be no change. Some people are defining Bitcoin according to the markets and according to which one has the most value and which one people are willing to purchase for more money. Um, and, and I think it's it's been really fascinating to watch how people define Bitcoin and how people just talk past each other on many of these issues because so much of it has been focused on that, but people are often not willing to have those debates directly. Yeah, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that I didn't put that in my article because I don't know if you remember, like I framed it as like, oh, these are some of the different divides. And there are parts where I talk about how like some people define Bitcoin, um, you know, this way and then others, uh, like I, I do mention like, oh, some are saying they're following the white paper, which says like it's the longest chain, which they're describing as accumulated difficulty. And then others are saying it'll be determined by price, by users. Um, so I, di- I actually did include that, but I didn't make it a section the way that I did some of the other divides. Um, but I do agree with you that that is actually a, a really, really, really interesting debate that's popped up. I do actually have a question later on to to get back out to this point. So I'd like to actually circle back to it later. Um, but first, I want to turn back to Mike and just ask you, Mike, why not call off Segwit2x at this point? The chain split tokens across multiple exchanges are trading 85% for the 1x coins and 15% for the 2x coins. And the split is going to create havoc across the world for both users on exchanges and hosted wallets, as well as users who manage their own private keys in their own wallets. So why why even follow through at this point? Well, I don't think it's a it's going to cause havoc at all. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty confident that coming out of this, one way or another, the community is going to come together. I think we've actually seen this type of debate, you know, right where we're at today, it seems like there's just no way it's all going to come together, but we've seen this before. Uh, if you go back to internet protocols in the uh, mid nineties, we had a problem, which was actually pretty much the same set of, of debates about centralization versus scalability. Uh, at that time it had to do with routing tables. And honestly, you know, the folks involved in those debates, they were, so uh, extreme on their different views. Uh, The name calling, the arguments is is so similar to what we have today. Um, And the debate was that we had grown to a point where the existing protocols, you you took a lot of of RAM. And so you had a really large router box and you had like two gigabytes of RAM, right, in order to hold the full routing tables. And so some proposals were on the table for how to make it scale better. And, of course, as you start to think about what the trade-offs are going to be, you end up with the exact same set of trade-offs that we have today with, with the Bitcoin debate here. Um, you know, is this centralizing? Is this giving too much power to one group? And how are we going to scale if we don't do it? So we've been through these things before, and they do resolve. Um, so the one thing I, I would say to the world is, like, look, you don't have to worry. This is going to be a little bit chaotic for a little while, but we're going to get through it. In terms of the futures markets, um, I think that's a uh, it's definitely something to look at. Uh, I wish we had a really good indicator that that you could fully rely on. Um, one thing you've got to remember is that you know these are run through exchanges. It requires you to put your coins on those exchanges. 
Um, it's going to be interesting to get the market price to really settle out. Um, it's certainly something that, that I'm watching. I think it's uh, the best indicator of all. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, you talk to folks on both sides of the fence. People are wary about putting the, their money on Bitfinex. There's a couple of other exchanges doing it as well now. But it's not like we have a full, open, deep order book. Uh, it's a very thin market. We know what happens with thin markets. You end up with prices that are manipul- manipulatable. It's not much of a thin market, though, right? There's about $2 million a day traded on the Bitfinex market, and there is quite a decent amount of volume traded on the Huobi market as well. Uh, so it's really not that thin of a market, right? If you're looking at this and you're saying like, oh, well, I think it's clearly going to go the other way, or even the market is off by more than 20%, there is a lot of money to be made in betting the other way. And writing it off based on, well, you know, some people aren't willing to put their coins on the exchange. That's true. But there's some people on both sides of the fence, as you point out. So that shouldn't materially affect the price more than one way or another. I think it's, it's you know, these, these prediction markets are actually very important in looking at where things are going to go here. Well, the $2 million a day market is a tiny market. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Very manipulable, very, very, uh, very thin. So there's still a lot of money to be made there, though, right? I mean, you can make $10, 20000000 million if you think it's going to go the other way. Why haven't people then? Well, it takes a lot of time for people to move cold storage, as you know. I mean, you know, people are apprehensive about moving large amounts of coin. Um, and I think, you know, we probably both agree that the, the bulk of Bitcoin users out there are fairly neutral on the topic. They're like, hey, can't this just be solved already? Um, I've certainly pulled our customers and I know where they're at. I do think that the markets are important. Don't get me wrong. I think they're very, very important. I think they're the best indicator there is. But I don't think that we have a great indicator yet. So still watching it. Okay. And Matt, um, I also have a question for you. Why not capitulate? Why don't the Bitcoin Core developers just adopt a two megabyte block size limit into Bitcoin Core and say, hey, it's dangerous to have a chain with only 15% of the hash power you know, it's, it can be so easily attacked. Let's just work together with the miners since they're part of the Bitcoin community too and do our best to ensure that this hard fork is not contentious and also that Bitcoin Core retains control of the protocol. Yeah, I've heard that argument a lot and I'm actually really glad you brought it up because I think it, it rather fundamentally misunderstands what Bitcoin Core is, right? Bitcoin Core is not an organization. It's not really even a group of people. It's more about, it's a process, And you can maybe argue that it's a group of people who believe in a process, but it's a process. And it's a process whereby changes are thoroughly vetted. Anyone can participate in this process. It's very open. Uh, Even the top people who contribute a lot are very active in contributing in the open on uh, public mailing lists, on discussion on GitHub, in various places. And when you look at Segwit2x, they're you know, all of these features that are key to the process of making changes in Bitcoin Core. And I believe that most of the community holds dear as the process of making changes to Bitcoin just aren't there, right? This is why you saw the Seoul Bitcoin meetup, the Israeli Bitcoin Association, the Bitcoin Argentina meetup, the Bitcoin Munich meetup, all release statements from their members, from large groups of individuals who care deeply about Bitcoin, are heavily invested in Bitcoin, and are very knowledgeable about Bitcoin, denouncing Segwit2x and saying that this just isn't the process by which changes should be made. There is no discussion. As Mike kind of said, There, this New York agreement was pretty much a declaration. It said this change is happening. Uh, most of the writings on Segwit2x, on the Segwit2x mailing list and from people pushing the project are simply stating that this is going to happen and miners are going to switch to it and that'll kind of be the end of it. And so this is kind of fundamentally incompatible with the process that is Bitcoin Core and with the process that is Bitcoin and defines Bitcoin to so many of its users. Matt, I didn't say that this is like a de facto, it's got to be this way. And the New York agreement didn't say that either. What we did say is like, hey, we would like to go figure out a mechanism to look at increasing the block size uh, through a hard fork. Yeah, that's in there. It wasn't even created by the Segwit2x team. This is an idea that's been battered around for a long time. Part of why I didn't sign the agreement is because I think the process 
is to go figure out how to do it, make sure you can do it, test it, do all those things. Those things have happened. And this characterization that you know the Segwit2x team did not do those things is just a myth. People like to um, you know, criticize things. Uh, you won't find me... You're focusing on the wrong part of the process, though. You just mentioned testing and engineering effort, but that is like the last 10% of the process. The first 90% of the process by which all of these meetup groups, all of these users who care deeply about Bitcoin and people who are contributors to Bitcoin Core care deeply about is consensus and asking people what their view is. I'm glad you mentioned the Hong Kong agreement that I was a party to and some other people signed, I believe it was about a year and a half ago, and compared it to Segwit2x, but the reality is it's fundamentally different. It was very, very carefully worded, and it says that it, if there is strong community support, but there wasn't, and so it was largely dropped. But Segwit2x, instead, you look at comments from many of its most vocal proponents, and they say very clearly, hash power is going to adopt it, and then this is going to happen. And sure, you know, I think a lot of people have somewhat backed down from that view and said, well, you know, if the market doesn't support it or if hash rate doesn't support it, that's okay. But this is still cutting to the fundamental question of how you define Bitcoin. Is it based on hash power defining it? Is it based on users and consensus for changes? And what does that process look like? Well, wait, but Matt, I have a question about um, if you uh, turn that same lens onto adoption of SegWit, where only 30% of miners wanted SegWit, and, and you're saying like, oh, you know, you shouldn't force things onto other people and stuff like that. Some of the people on the 2X side say, oh, well, then, you know, this user-activated software tried to force SegWit onto the miners and Bitcoin Core didn't denounce them. And yet they're denouncing Segwit2x, even though they're saying that they're doing kind of the same thing. So why why is that? I mean, the reality is many, if not most of the people contributing to Bitcoin Core very, very strongly denounced BIP148 in the UASF moment, including myself, including several other people at Chaincode, the research and development lab I work at. Uh, many people very strongly denounced it because it didn't have that level of consensus. There was a large part of the community that backed it in spite of these denunciations, but claiming that people working on Bitcoin Core didn't denounce it is just a misnomer. There were one but, or two. But didn't Bitcoin Core come out with like an official denunciation against Segwit2x? But it didn't against the UASF. The the problem is Bitcoin Core is as I mentioned, kind of a process and the process for making any kind of formal announcements or any formal declarations or formal statements or taking a formal position is about getting consensus across all of the major people who contribute. And as I mentioned, there were one or two people who contribute to Bitcoin Core, uh, even often in a minor capacity, who were in favor of the UASF movement and were pushing for it. And so no such statement was possible. Whereas with 2x, there were no such people, there's no one who contributes to Bitcoin Core who has kind of any interest in it. And so such a statement could be made. That does not, however, mean that the individuals involved in Bitcoin Core weren't loudly and as a group, with the exception of one or two, denouncing BIP148 because it just simply didn't have the level of consensus that people wanted to see. We're getting really super deep into the weeds, so I actually just want to take it back to... Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I also, I, you know, I'm interested in these details, but I also want to take it back to a little bit of a higher level and just ask to an outside person, a one megabyte block versus a two megabyte block seems like a pretty trivial difference. So why is it that you believe so strongly in your, in your, um, you know, that your way is the right way? Well, I think everyone, Matt included, don't let me speak for you, Matt, but would, would agree that, you know, there's a lot of work to do on Bitcoin scalability going forward. Two megabytes by itself is not, not the end. Um, there will be layer two solutions as well that come on, on in the not too distant future. So there's a, a, a lot of changes that have to happen. But you got to remember the genesis of where this comes from. At the time that we created this proposal, we didn't have SegWit and we didn't have anything else on the table. Um, that was shippable anytime soon. We do know that you know, significant changes to the protocol 
take years to get through. Um, part of that's technical, part of that's consensus. So we do need to get to a world where we have a steady stream of like things that are coming so that we can get that consensus on time, you know, takes a while. Um, anyway, what we unblocked. Yeah, and I actually, I wanted to just define this word consensus because both, both of you guys are talking about it a lot. And, you know, as we mentioned with the SegWit proposal, the, when Bitcoin core released it, they said, oh, it'll only be adopted if 95% of the miners want it. Is there anything in this world that gets 95% support for anything? And, you know, if so, like, which I just, I don't even know if that's possible for anything. Um, and if that's the case, then what percentage is consensus? Like, you know, Segwit2x defined it as 80%. Um, but I just, I don't even know kind of like, you know, how you figure out what, what that even, how you define that word. Well, let me let me start with one minor correction. Segwit wasn't released just based on hash power consensus or based on miners supporting it. Before Segwit was put in a formal release, uh, several contributors to Bitcoin Core reached out to every major ecosystem company they could find, every single one. Uh, some of them didn't respond, but of those who did, not a single one was negative. There was not a single response that said, no, we don't want this. There were some responses that said things to the effect of like, yeah, you know, it'd be nice if it happens or it's not a massive deal for us, but it would be good. But there was not a single negative response. Okay, just as a reporter, I will tell you that uh, definitely there are two major companies in this space, the two biggest, who privately complain to me about Segwit. Because uh, I guess on their side, they have to do a lot of changes uh, to their code to implement it. So I do know that, um, and this was all back in 2016. This is not a recent. There were some, it's there were some who responded that they don't think it will happen quickly or that it's not a replacement for other changes and that they still wanted to see other changes and that they would have to make significant changes to their code to adopt it, but they, and thus they might not adopt it quickly uh, because remember with SegWit, uh, companies and you know, people writing software can adopt it over time. There's no kind of requirement that they make those changes right away. Uh, but there wasn't, there weren't any responses that said no. And maybe some folks uh, who just had such a strong opposition didn't bother to respond. I don't know. Um, but there weren't any folks who came out strongly against it. And even some of the most vocal voices against SegWit um, from people who have now often migrated to Bitcoin Cash viewed it as just not a replacement for other changes and, and thought that it was the wrong focus. Well, I, so actually to that point, I want to ask... Do, do do the core developers think that the block size should ever be increased? Because wasn't the the one megabyte limit was introduced sort of arbitrarily, and it was only put there to prevent spam. But Satoshi felt it was you know just like a temporary measure. So, is this something that you guys think you can never increase? Well, I mean, remember that SegWit does have the same effects as a block size increase. It is a block size increase. Blocks are now larger than one megabyte. Well, but I mean, actually raising the block size limit. Well, it did raise the block size limit, right? There are blocks greater than one megabyte on the network today. No, no, no. But I'm talking about the actual cap on the blocks rather than, do you know what I mean? Like so, years. Yeah, I mean, I, we're talking past each other. It, it's a misnomer to say that SegWit is not a block size increase. SegWit is a backwards compatible block size increase, which has technical implications, but it is still a block size increase. Now that said, I don't think there are many, if any, con core contributors or members of the broader technical community in Bitcoin, right? The technical community in Bitcoin is much larger than Bitcoin Core. It's a lot of people um, who believe that, no, the block size should never be increased. But again, I think the focus of many, if not most of folks who contribute to Bitcoin at a technical level view that changes to the block size and changes to Bitcoin's core consensus rules and the rules that govern everyone who uses the system should be done only with broad consent of the users who are going to be affected by this change. And so it was important with SegWit to reach out to a lot of people. It was important to ask people at meetups and ask people online and ask companies 
and then also require adoption from minors. Just like I think it should be important for any changes to Bitcoin to meet similar thresholds. And I do hope that in the future we will reach those thresholds for changes to uh, further increase Bitcoin's on-chain capacity. But we certainly haven't reached those yet. And I think a lot of changes to how proposals like Segwit2x both get made and are implemented are going to be required for that level of agreement across the community. So I'm going to keep each of you in the hot seat a little bit longer. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for ramping up brands and boosting business results and can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. Thanks, OnRamp, for being a supporter of this podcast and all of our listeners. I'm talking with Segwit2Us developer Mike Belshi and Bitcoin protocol developer Matt Corallo. So, Mike, what do you say to the accusations that Segwit2x represents a corporate takeover of Bitcoin and that this turns uh, what is a decentralized project into a centralized one? Well, I don't think that has any truth. I I don't think that anyone um, really can say that with a straight face. If you look at the folks that are behind uh, that support Segwit2x, I mean, you're going to find folks that have helped build the ecosystem. Uh, You know, everybody in the Bitcoin world helps make Bitcoin better. The businesses help make it better. The exchanges help make it better. The payment processors help make it better. The folks that want to run funds help make it better. So if you think that Barry Silbert or, uh, you know, Wences Casares or Stephen Pear or, you know, Peter Smith, these are the, the leads of major companies, Brian Armstrong, Coinbase. If you think these guys are trying to take over Bitcoin, I mean, you're, you're accusing them of exactly what they're against. We're all completely in favor of the Bitcoin ethos. Uh, we believe that Bitcoin needs to be more decentralized than it is today, um, not less. Segwit2x does nothing to change the centralization properties of Bitcoin. So actually, we are going to be working in the future on making it better, not the opposite. So I don't know where that comes from. I think it's just all part of um, trying to attack. All Segwit2x is, is a proposal, and it's a proposal for how to increase capacity on chain. Matt says that, you know, Segwit was there and supported. It's there. You know, it's been active for three months and uh, two months, I guess. And it's got all of about, you know, a 5% increase on chain today. Um, That's good. Uh, I'm glad Segwit's there. BitGo was one of the first to implement Segwit across all of its wallets. It was a lot of work to be done. But, you know, we think we can do better and we think we have to do more. Um, So it's not a corporate takeover by any means. And actually, um, it is completely open. So... This is just an argument to try to try to sway things from a dramatic in a dramatic fashion. It's just not true. I just wanted to agree with Mike here. Like I think, like you were saying earlier about the IETF, you know, no matter how many people you send to a conference, people are still speaking on behalf of themselves. And whether the people who are pushing for Segwit2x are primarily some CEOs of some uh, Bitcoin companies, or whether they're other individuals, shouldn't really matter. What we should be looking at is. What is the level of support from all of the individuals across the Bitcoin community? Like you said, everyone who is interested and who works on Bitcoin in one capacity or another, or even just who supports Bitcoin is helping make it better. And we should be looking to all of them for changes to Bitcoin and not just a few individuals. Wow. I'm so glad that I got a moment where you guys both agreed on something. I'm going to turn that into a little clip and put it on Twitter so that I'll be um, <laughs> the nasty uh, t- Twitter, a uh, crypto Twitter going on right now maybe um, gets a little bit nicer. Um, Matt, what do you say to the people who contend that the only reason we see such rapid support for one megabyte blocks is due to a long history of censorship on the main Bitcoin subreddit, our Bitcoin, which they say shuts down any dissenting views? Uh, I mean, I guess I have two answers to that. First of all, it's somewhat of a joke, right? The our Bitcoin subreddit had 
huge issues with spammers and very blatant vote manipulation and bots that were just posting the same thing over and over. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Reddit is a platform where comments which appear and comments which appear near the top of the page are the ones that are most voted on by users of the system. But it's also very easy to manipulate by getting a bunch of bots and automatically upvoting comments you support, which results in significantly changing the context of conversation going on. And so they tried to fight back. Uh, some people thought they fought back much too hard. Some people thought they didn't fight back enough. Whatever. Honestly, I think it's not all that interesting of an argument because most people I talked to stopped reading Reddit a long time ago just because it became a mess, right? As you point out in your article, the both Reddits are full of people just denouncing the other side and declaring that they're guaranteed to win and they don't care or even bother trying to understand the views of other people, right? Everyone here is trying to make Bitcoin better. Everyone is trying their best to push Bitcoin forward. And the thing people need to be focusing on is understanding where other people are coming from, understanding why they're pushing for certain changes in certain ways, and trying to work with that and come to some agreement instead of just attacking the other side. And so most people I talk to in person at meetups, and most of the developers I know just barely, if ever, read Reddit because it's just not interesting. Yeah, but I think like I think new users who don't know much about Bitcoin who go to Reddit, they're obviously just because of the name, our Bitcoin is just going to attract more of them. So I do think some people on the bigger block side feel like, oh, they're only pre- being presented one view, which you know, it's just. I mean, it's just an interesting thing if, for any listeners who have not. Checked out both our BTC, sorry, our Bitcoin and our BTC. You should definitely look at them both because they are just completely different, and it's 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 actually somewhat hilarious uh, to to see just how different they are. Um, and I guess, like in a way, maybe it's just because it's so unpleasant, maybe to go to a forum where you're just going to get in fights all the time. So there's like a natural um, kind of like, uh, divergence to, to find your own like-minded people. But, um, but it is quite the sight to behold. Um, Mike, I want to ask you, why has minor support for Segwit2x been dropping in recent weeks? When I began reporting my huge story on Segwit2x, it was at 95% support, my minor support for Segwit2x. And in the two weeks that I was working on that story, it dropped down to 80%. And this morning it's actually at 77%. You know, you'd have to ask the miners to get the answer to that question. I mean, you know, one of the struggles we have with getting consensus is trying to figure out how people feel and then, you know, trying to to understand if they're going to change their mind or if they're not going to change their mind. So, you know, often you hear criticism saying that, like, these types of events are uh, or these types of signals are not valid because people can change their mind. And, of course, there's truth to that. Um, but, the and whole so, point- but does that w- make you worry at all about pulling off your, because I know you view Sequit2x as like an upgrade to the network. So doesn't this reduce the chances that you're going to be able to pull it off in that fashion? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Right. If you don't have minor support, like, you know, then, then this isn't, uh, this isn't an interesting thing to do. So, I mean, at uh, 77%, um, you know, we'll have to, have to, to look at it a little bit. If it goes way down, then eventually you do have to say, okay, this isn't going to work. Of course. I mean, a, a key part of this is bringing everybody together and getting them to signal in the various ways we can. Um, the problem is until it goes active, you don't know what people really vote. Is there some threshold at which you would call it off? Like if it falls below some certain percentage, you would say, OK, we're not going to do this hard work. I don't know what call it off means for me. Um, I mean, so what happened here is we put together a package, which was SegWit plus two megabyte, which people agreed to, you know, two, two months ago. And uh, that's what got SegWit turned on. And now, you know, there's the two megabyte part. So we put it in a disjoint uh, time uh, activation because we recognized that the, uh, the two megabyte hard fork portion uh, required more prep time. So that's fine. Um, now, people are, that gives people the opportunity to change their mind, which is, an, you know, an undesirable consequence from my perspective, but it's the right thing to do. So... I, I don't have an answer for you in terms of like what's the what's the magic number at which point it makes no sense. Uh, but certainly, if you don't have minor support, then it can't go through. Um, so at some point, it just it just doesn't work that way. And in terms of call it off, 
I mean, it's already activated um, with the folks that have, have turned it on. So they're changing their minds. That means they're running, they're going to change it. If they're gonna, not going to follow through with the second part of the process, then that means they're actually changing their mind kind of midstream. And that's always been uh, one possibility for this proposal. So, um, Well, remember, at the risk of getting into the weeds too much, I wanted to add one more clarification. I mean, Mike, you, you characterize this as miners changing their mind, but remember that mining has become a specialized industry. So the people who are signaling for Segwit2x and the people who are responsible for the day-to-day operation of selecting the thing to mine on are the pools. But the pools very rarely, if ever, are actually the people who own the hash power. Many of them own a small fraction, but not enough to matter. They're not the people who can actually make the decision of what to mine on if they really feel strongly. So we saw this with the Bitcoin cash fork, and I think this is maybe more of the reason why people argue that signaling is less interesting and less because people could change their mind. We saw with the Bitcoin cash fork, what happened was it became briefly more profitable to mine. And after a day or two or three or five, the miners themselves, the people who own the hash rate and are responsible for making a profit on their their investment, pressured their pools and said, look, if you don't activate this, uh, you mine on the thing that's more profitable. If you don't optimize for the amount of money I'm making, I'm going to go elsewhere with my hash rate. Sorry. And one of the major, one of the CEOs of one of the major pools out there told me that he had 30% of his hash rate threatened to leave if he didn't implement automatic switching based on what's more profitable immediately. And so there's, there's more nuance than just people can change their mind. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, this then gets us to sort of what might happen after that fork. So let's just assume, just because we have to <laughs> pick something, um, that the 2x chain has 85% hash power and that 15% of the hash power remains on the original chain. What are all the ways that a blockchain with only 15% of the current hash power can be attacked? Um, I think there are many ways, but they all cost something, right? So even if you want to say, okay, I'm going to attack this 15% hash power chain and I'm going to make it unusable, you have to have double its hash power. So you have to take 15% of your ha- of the hash power globally that you have and attack this chain instead of mining something useful. And I assume if your attack works that all this effort, all of this money you spent on mining these blocks is useless. And that is a ton, a ton of money to just throw down the drain to make your voice heard and make a decision here. And I, I if you're looking at 15%, and especially if you're looking at 15% of hash rate, which is going to follow price after a few days or after a week, and things might not look the same after a few days, it's not clear to me that any attacks are feasible at kind of the 15, 20, 30% threshold as much as they would be at the one or 2% threshold. And, but what about, um, like, can't you make a lot of money in the short term before the price drops? And uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like you could make a lot of money just right off the bat. And then, you know, later people might realize like, oh, there was an attack on the network and then the price would drop. But at that point, you've already made your profit, like if you exchange, right? Well, uh, not quite. Uh, There's a few things which kind of slow you down there. First of all, people would notice that there's an attack going on immediately when the attack occurs. And I assume, I know at least several exchanges, I assume many exchanges have automated systems, which will pause. Even if it's a civil attack, would they know? Well, a civil attack is very different. A civil attack doesn't allow hash power to do anything. A civil attack is purely at a uh, non-hash power level. And and most people uh, would relatively easily not have this issue. And so for listeners who don't know what a civil attack is, that's where you are one person, but you make up me make it look like you're a whole bunch of different people but but couldn't you make it look like you're a number of different miners and and, and do you know what i'm saying so you make yourself well, look matter. like you're like 10 different miners it doesn't matter if you pretend to be 10 different miners or not if there is a reorg 
which happens and a large amount of hash power just by the amount of hash power happens and triggers a reorg, then you know there's something going on and there's, there's systems okay. in place, some exchanges to just pause deposits and withdraws if something like that happens. Okay. And a reorg is where uh, basically the previous transactions that had been mined in blocks get undone or, or just like re reorganized. Is that it? Yeah, pretty much. And, and there's, there's one other thing which is kind of important to realize, at least from the point of view of exploiting these kinds of attacks. Uh, all of the mining reward that you would be getting on this chain is not immediately spendable. So you can't take a mining reward that's mined in a block and immediately in the very next block or in the same block, go and deposit it at an exchange. You have a pretty significant waiting period that's enforced by the Bitcoin network. And then on top of that, many exchanges require a few extra confirmations. And so once you start talking about these kinds of big attacks, it becomes very obvious and people can pretty quickly shut down until... Things are looking more stable. And in fact, we see the exchanges and most businesses. Wait, I'm sorry. What do you mean by shut down? Pause deposits and withdrawals. Okay. Oh, oh, like on the exchanges. But the chain itself would keep going. Sure, the chain would keep going. But uh, all of these people who would be subject to these kinds of attacks would simply not be because they're not accepting new payments at the time. And we've already seen... Many, if not most, if not the vast majority of startups and Bitcoin exchanges announced that they're going to pause deposits and withdrawals right before this hard fork until things have stabilized and are clear, irrespective of whether or not there are any obvious attacks. And then what about people who manage their own private keys in, in user-controlled wallets? Does that mean that they also are are likely not to lose money in an attack? I would recommend that they also follow the guidance that the exchanges and many businesses are giving and not transact during that time. It's just easier to be safe that way. Um, But there are warnings in many clients that would notify them in cases of these attacks. Some clients don't. And thus, you know, wait three days, wait seven days, wait a month, look at what's going on and figure out when things look stable before you start to be very active and accept payments from people you don't trust. Okay. So this is interesting because I just was thinking like, oh, a a chain with only 15% hash power is going to be so prone to attacks that it's going to be very unsafe and unstable to use. But you are saying that in a way, the economic benefit you could possibly get from that is just like immediately negated because people will realize that there's an attack. And so the value of those coins will drop. And so that sort of like kind of deters people from doing an attack in the first place. That's I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, look at Bitcoin Cash, right? Bitcoin Cash has the same proof of work algorithm, but a significantly, significantly lower hash rate than Bitcoin on most days. And hash rate could easily switch over and attack Bitcoin Cash in large ways. But A, it hasn't. And B, if it were to, the price would probably almost immediately drop to zero and people would stop accepting it because it has been made clearly unusable. This is why I love what people call crypto economics, although I did see someone on Twitter was like, crypto economics is just economics. (laughs) Um, Anyway, okay, so actually, let's go back to something that you brought up earlier, um, which is how people are defining Bitcoin. I wanted to talk about how some of the exchanges and services are deciding to handle this and how they're naming the chains. I did see that Coinbase, Zappo and Gemini, they all stated that they're going to give the name Bitcoin to the chain with the most accumulated difficulty which, as I mentioned earlier, seems to follow the Bitcoin white paper, which several times mentions that Bitcoin is defined as the longest chain or the longest proof of work chain. Um, There is a line in the abstract of the white paper that says the longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that it came from the largest pool of CPU power. Um, Although now I guess that would be ASIC Um, power because we don't don't need... (laughs) Sorry? The, the white paper does not define Bitcoin in the context of changes to the consensus rules by hash power. It defines Bitcoin in the context of if there are no changes to the consensus rules, if there are no changes to the rules, if there are no hard forks more specifically, then it is defined 
constrained by the largest hash power. In fact, the, the white paper also goes on to talk about how all clients should be rejecting blocks, which are invalid according to the rules of the system. But more importantly, I don't think that's an interesting debate, right? This is something that was written however many years ago now, and it's like trying to read way too much into something based on a time where we just didn't know anywhere near as much about how Bitcoin operates and how people want it to operate and how people use it than we do today. Yeah. So that was the other side that I wanted to bring up, which is that um, because of these chain split tokens, we see that a lot of users uh, or, or rather, yeah, that a lot of users going into this believe that the chain um, that is the real Bitcoin is probably the one that won't be the longest chain. So what do you think is the way that the different exchanges and services should handle it? So the longest chain is the ones that the, 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 the largest amount of hash power went behind for supporting some set of rules. And that's a unified set of rules. So uh, what Matt said is right, that you know the, the overall system is resistant to folks changing you know critical rule sets in some ways. Um, and for the most part, that's the that's thought about as like selfishly changing things. In this case, what's happening is if the longest chain gets on the two x side, it means that the bulk of these guys think that actually that is the right consensus rule that they would like to support. So um, it's still adhering to kind of uh, not kind of exactly uh, the original the original definition of what what Bitcoin is. Um, I think all of the businesses out there, the exchanges, uh, payment processors, wallets, etc. Uh, in terms of what happens at this fork, they've currently got software which has something called Bitcoin. And it follows this longest chain that we have today. What's happening after this fork is that there's going to be two different chains. And uh, these software pro- programs out there need to pick which one is called Bitcoin and which one is not. And it's a tricky, tricky problem. Um, I think this is going to sort out really quickly. Um, it'll initially be uh, based on longest chain, but the market value is going to speak and that's going to influence who's the longest chain. So at the end, it's going to be market value. Um, and I'm pretty sure Matt agrees with this. Uh, there's not really much controversy. So if, uh, if, market sig- if the market is signaling uh, strongly in favor of the 2x chain uh, and the chain is the longest, it's going to just have this magnifying effect, um, multiplying effect, I should say. Uh, where it's going to just take it even more dominantly forward. Yeah, but in this case, where most likely what's going to happen at the fork is that the um, the hash power and the markets are going to be the exact mirror opposite of each other, where one has 85% hash power and the other has 85% value, then what happens? Well, that's if you think that the current signals are perfectly accurate. I mean, we just went through how some of these signals change, right? So, you know, a couple of months ago, we had miners signaling in a particular way. Um, and then we talked about, like, what does it mean? And why did they change their minds? Have they changed their minds? Is it the pool? Is it something else? All of us can can speculate on what that is. The futures markets, which just came up, are pretty thin. We talked about that. We have different views on it. But we'll see. But what will happen is at the time of the fork, these things will get very concrete. And very quickly, we're going to figure out which chain is valued. Yeah, I have to agree with Mike there. I mean, it depends on how you define very quickly, but absolutely, I think we'll see over the first few days, over the first week, uh, there's a pretty good shot over the first few hours, but I think that is very likely to change over the first few days. Um, We'll see things pretty clearly stabilize. We'll see hash rate try to follow price, and then people try to discern which way things are going to go in the markets as well. It'll stabilize in some way. So the other wild card that I want to throw into all this is Bitcoin Cash. Um, You've got Jihan Wu, the CEO of Bitmain, which is the largest Bitcoin mining equipment manufacturing company. And um, he's also the head of the largest mining pool operator, Antpool, uh, touting Bitcoin Cash. And right now, Bitmain is actually only accepting Bitcoin Cash as payment for its latest mining equipment. Then you've got Roger Veer, who he's one of the earliest Bitcoin holders um, or Bitcoiners and also one of the largest holders who owns Bitcoin.com. And he's saying that uh, Bitcoin Cash is closest to the original version of uh, original vision of Bitcoin. 
uh, which has, is actually true in a technical sense um, because it doesn't have SegWit, which is obviously how Bitcoin launched without SegWit. Um, and it also has eight megabyte blocks, which is plenty of room for current transaction volume, which, of course, when Bitcoin first launched, there was plenty of room for transaction volume. So these two guys are running around saying that this is the true Bitcoin or closest to the true Bitcoin. So if the one exchange prevails, but continues to have scaling issues, do you guys think that Bitcoin Cash should be the ultimate winner? I want to push back very briefly. I mean, I, I think this this highlights maybe the difference of how people interpret, you know, people try to divine certain things about Satoshi's vision for Bitcoin and, and the early vision for Bitcoin. And, and people strongly disagree about what those are. People who got in at the same time, people who spoke with Satoshi all have different agreement, uh, all have different opinions about kind of what the early vision was. But as to your point, I think the Bitcoin Cash is frankly kind of a, a side thing at the moment, right? It's so small in terms of market value, in terms of hash rate, and in terms of support from businesses, from the community, from users. Uh, there is some traction in it, but I am skeptical it makes any difference in the SegWit2x context. And Mike, what do you think? So they took a different approach. I mean, they just created a new coin, which is not compatible with any of the software out there today. So everybody had to go do a mad dash to change everything. And that's not what Segwit2x is trying to do. Segwit2x, you know, we, some people say it is trying to change things, but it really it's not. It was designed not to change the transaction format so that it's compatible with um, the vast, vast majority of existing systems everywhere from exchanges to, to wallets. Um, so... Anyway, I consider Bitcoin Cash just to be something different. Um, I would not want to put words in the mouth of Roger or Jihan. Um, have you spoken to them, Laura? I was spoken to Roger and Jihan would not talk to me for this particular article. <laughs> um, but Roger, you know, he like, I don't know if you've seen those things on Bitcoin.com, but they he has like all these charts comparing Bitcoin Cash to Bitcoin in its early days. And then there's this like little evolutionary tree that they've got going where um, he tries to show that um, Bitcoin or sorry, Bitcoin Cash is like basically an extension of Bitcoin and that Bitcoin with Segwit is like a totally different animal. And it, it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> have you, well, have you guys seen that? What we do better is to not, not try to answer for, for other people. Obviously the things that he posts are the things that he posts. I mean, he's very interested in that coin. Uh, I just consider it uh, to be a different coin. Um, it's got its own set of properties and, and it's divorced from, from Bitcoin. So when, when I want to um, ask a little bit of a, of a different question now. So I was wondering, are there any women that have been involved at the center of the block size debate? And if so, do you think that things would have gone differently if there had been more women involved? Yeah, I think they would have gone differently. Uh, there, there's a few there's a few folks who, who have been involved. Uh, probably maybe the, the most obvious is Elizabeth Stark, who's the CEO of one of the companies implementing uh, Lightning and has their implementation uh, in beta right now on testnet. And I believe they're looking to do a beta on mainnet relatively soon and, and support people using Lightning for instant and small value transactions. And and I think, yeah, there is, as I kind of mentioned briefly early on, there's so much of the community right now that almost in a sense refuses to try to understand the viewpoints and the kind of where people are coming to these different conclusions based on and, and try to get to the heart of where people are disagreeing and try to really understand what people's thoughts are. And there's a lot of that, I think, that is ego-driven. There's a lot of it that is, this is a community primarily of upper middle class white men from similar Western backgrounds who all have a pretty strong ego. And often that gets in the way of having a good understanding of where other people are coming from and taking their position sometimes, at least to be able to sympathize and be able to come to some agreement instead of just arguing past each other all the time. Well, I think the Chinese miners would disagree with being characterized as middle-aged white men, but um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's true. There's plenty, of, there's plenty of studies that have shown that you know women make great managers, often better than men. Um, you know, we have a problem, and it's not specific to Bitcoin, but I mean, the technology field 
just doesn't have enough enough women. Um, so I think that yeah, if we had more women on the teams, we probably would see more more um, even keeledness. I think some of the uh, aggressive traits of, of men that are debating can be amplified if it's only men in the room, and if we had women uh, as part of the team, I think it'd probably be better. I wish I could confirm that true or false, but that'd be great. And then, so uh, let's do uh, predictions. What do you think is going to happen at the time of the hard fork? Go ahead, Mike. You can start with this one. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are like, oh, man, like people are going to ring me forever if I'm wrong. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I left my crystal ball at home. Sorry. (laughs) I think this I think Cyber 2X is going to go through. I think actually there's a lot of folks that have been staying on the sidelines that are going to come in. Obviously, I've spoken to a lot of folks in the industry. Uh, the vitriolic uh, language on social media is problematic. Um, it makes a lot of people just not want to participate. Uh, I think that's a, a long-term thing that the Bitcoin community needs to figure out how to address. I think as we get past this, some of that will resolve itself, kind of like as I referred to with you know previous heated, intense uh, debates. But I think the economic power is going to come out um, in a massive way uh, to, to make to make this happen. And I think although there's a lot of um, activity on Twitter and Reddit, um, it actually is a small piece of the ecosystem. I know if you go to China and you ask them about Bitcoin, and they're not participating on, on Twitter that much, um, which is mostly a Western thing, uh, you know, they feel a, a strong pride about their contribution to Bitcoin um, and how, how they feel about it. Um, if you go into to Europe, you see a lot as well. So this is a global effort. And while Twitter and, and Reddit seem to indicate one thing, I think that actually is kind of the uh, the centralized Western view. Uh, but the global view is going to come out. And we're going to initially start with a lot of uh, hash power behind it. So, so by default, it'll be the longest chain. The value is going to go strongly in favor of SegWit2x. Uh, that's going to reinforce the miners, and then it's going to go even farther. There will be a long-term chain. It looks like there's some folks that that want to stay with um, the one megabyte block, uh, and I think they're willing to to do that basically forever. And then, you know, for the folks that are pushing for Segwit2x, we really just want to help this thing scale better. I hope that the noise about like corporate takeover or things like that goes away. The process, you know, if you look at the core process. They've been around for nine years, and you know they've got a, a, a good process, I would say. I think they could learn a lot, actually, from IETF. I think they're kind of recreating structures and trying to figure out uh, similar things about how to get decentralized voting to really be good um, and also to have it be open. Um, I know that they're open to improving that process, so I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize. You know, the, the, the segment 2 or slash BTC1, Really, I think the best thing would be if everybody just kind of pulled it in and figured out how to, how to make it happen on uh, Bitcoin Core as well, and we didn't get sidetracked with these other debates. But it's really just a technology proposal. Um, it's, it's nothing else. So and Matt? if we get past this, we can figure out how to scale it for the long term too. Um, yeah, and I think as you, as you mentioned early that I think we will see, and as Mike mentioned, I think we will see hash power uh, start on the Segwit2x chain. And we'll see, you know, 80% or whatever of hash power start on the Segwit2x chain. But I, I think discounting the futures market and the community to that extent doesn't really work, right? Anywhere you look in the community, the the most vocal and the vast majority of voices are strongly in opposition to Segwit2x. And it's true, there are a number who aren't. But you go look at these meetup groups, you look at, you know, people in person, you go ask them the like, as I mentioned earlier, there's what, four or five Bitcoin group, Bitcoin meetup groups who have never taken a position on anything. You know, meetups try to avoid alienating any members, and yet they still felt it necessary and possible for them to take a strong position denouncing Segwit2x and declaring that it shouldn't be uh, the Bitcoin or it is not the Bitcoin. Right. And you look also at the futures market. If there were people who were really going to come out strongly in favor of Segwit2x on the markets at the fork, and I think, you know, Mike mentioned earlier, and I and I agree, I think we're going to see the markets play a very strong role on where things go a week or two weeks after the fork. Maybe not 
how hash power votes or how hash power mines for the first day or two. But the the pressure on pools to mine the thing that is more profitable is going to be immense. And these futures market, you can make tens or $20 million if you think that things are going to go the other way. But we don't see that. We don't see the Chinese community participating on the Chinese exchanges, which have futures for this. We don't see anyone in the Western community voting strongly in favor with their dollars of Segwit2x. There are very few people who are staunchly in support of Segwit2x. There are many people who are, you know, okay, if it happens, that's fine. We'll use that. Or if it doesn't, that's also fine. But I am highly skeptical there's going to be many people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is, as it were, and risk all of their capital in Bitcoin by selling Bitcoin for Bitcoin 2x or by selling uh, the legacy token for Bitcoin 2x in order to shift the price enough to really make a difference. Whereas there are clearly okay, well, a lot of people who are willing to do that on the other side. Well. We'll see how it plays out. This is going to be the most, is I, I truly think it's actually the number one most interesting thing to happen in Bitcoin since its inception. <laughs> um, but this is all the time we have for today. So uh, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm at VBlueMatt on Twitter, and you can find the rest of my contact details if you look me up there. And Mike? I mean, a number of different places, um, Yeah, so I'm easy to reach. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you, yeah, Laura. Thank you for having us. And for the for the, uh, the industry and writing up this stuff. It's really important stuff. So thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, to learn more about Mike and Matt and to find previous episodes of the show, check out my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. New episodes of Unchained come out every other Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby and Fractal Recording. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.